at GBQ. We're always counting. Now we're making your time count with this episode of Empower Hour. Start the clock. Today, Chief Executive Officer at Level 6 Cybersecurity and Waypoint Cybersecurity joins us on Empower Hour. Kevin Jackson, welcome. Hello. Thanks for having me. So you've worn a lot of hats over your career. I looked at your LinkedIn, professor, chief security officer, executive director, cyber analyst. You're now a founder and a CEO. I'm going to talk about level six eventually here, but I want to talk about the journey that got you there. I know that you started back in the days when I was starting to work as well. We're about the same age, contemporaries, and you've had encounters with both cybersecurity and data. So let's talk about your start and how those two things came together. Absolutely. I mean, so my my really deep roots come out of uh, electrical engineering. I was a double E by degree coming out of college. You know, in the beginning, thought that I was going to live in the world of of hardware engineering for most of my career, but that was short lived. You know, as we got into the, the the heart of the '90s and the dot com boom hit, internet working and the World Wide Web became a thing. I found myself quickly drawn into software systems engineering. And almost automatically into compliance and security. Back before cybersecurity was even a term, uh, all we talked about then was infosec. That's really was the beginnings for me, and almost entirely in the beginning of my career in the DoD world. I was a DoD contractor all over the place in the Washington D.C. and Baltimore Beltways for years, and that was the beginning. But like you mentioned, I ended up having a parallel interest in the world of data, data analytics, and that just happened just by chance. Some of my earliest engagements as a consultant mostly to the DOD, involved having to learn a lot about data processing, data analytics, some of that actually in the satellite world. I worked in satellite systems engineering for a while and learned a lot about very large-scale data processing uh, and ended up using that in the future, kind of in parallel to all the cybersecurity work I, I was doing and compliance work to get deeper into data analytics and to be really interested in where those two meet. So that's kind of where I came from. And then over the years, I kind of went deeper and deeper into Cybersecurity management, you know, wanting to get towards that CISO role, which worked out great. And it kind of kind of all came together here in this last few years. So that's kind of where I came from. So sitting in that CISO seat, or, you know, if you can kind of project sitting in the management seat, cybersecurity is a pretty complex thing. What challenges did you see either your your peers in, in other CISO roles or in your own jobs, as you were CISO at various entities, what challenges do you have given that complexity? Yeah, you know, there's so many. And because it's all changed so fast, over the course of 20 years, it's really been a matter of scope. You know, we we started with such a narrow scope of IT security that it used to be all we needed to have was how do we protect the cables and the devices and the, net, you know, the overall network and the perimeter. And that was all we really needed to be bothered with. And then as the threats grew, as the capabilities grew, as technology grew, everything negative, all the threats, all the bad actors grew with it. And so the scope, you know, it's like scope creep on steroids. Everything just continually growing and growing and growing to the point that if you're just an IT security person, all of a sudden you're behind you're behind the eight ball. You're way off the mark because there's so many things in cybersecurity now that go well beyond pure IT alone. It's no longer enough to you know, have your, your network and your systems physically protected and networking connected and monitored, you've got to have so many other aspects. And when you grow the scope like that, you grow the demands on your team and on the managers who are running it because they have to go way beyond. They've got to be able to dynamically add more and more into their toolbox of how they're acting, how they're planning, how they're strategizing. And maybe most of all, you know, mentioned challenges, 
once you do kind of get your hands wrapped around the scope as it grows, the real big challenge then is resource management. And what do you do and how do you do it and when do you do it? And how do you, you know, resist the urge to always be falling for the tyranny of the urgent, which no one really resists very well in cybersecurity. If something's broken, you have to fix it. If there's there's certain things that one reason or another are dominating your attention, you, know, you tend to focus on that. But the hard part is, do you know that that's the right time frame to do something or the right answer to the problem? Balancing all of that massive scope and complexity that's always growing and changing with how you manage resources, people and tools, all the things, your time. Balancing all that, it's it's like a an infinite sided Rubik's cube. That's really where I see the challenge being. Well, and I think we talk about the, the complexity and we first met five or six years ago. It was at CIO Tomorrow. You were facilitating a panel I was on. When I'm on those kind of panels, I sometimes feel like I'm saying the same things I said in the late 90s, um, just in terms <laughs> of the basics. Before the marketers got a hold of it and turned it into cybersecurity and all sexy, it was information risk management or infosec, as you said. But yep. but it, it's the same principles, but the attack. And I'm, Kevin and I promise we'll try not to get too technical, but sound like a Star Trek or a sci-fi channel episode. But attack <laughs> surface is what is what's exposed for a business to the outside world. And just since that facilitated discussion, very few firms at least not as many as Microsoft wanted, we're on 365. Almost everybody's on it now. Yeah. Most of the clients, even small mid-market firms are in multiple cloud environments. Everybody's working from home. There are a lot of technologies that baked into products. When we do assessments, we walk into environments that have Internet of Things devices in the building that are connected to the network. Sometimes IT doesn't know they're there. Yep. On and on and on. And so... The tax surface has gotten huge. Complexity is one thing, but many times we don't think about the cost of ownership, cost of security ownership, as we expand services, as we expand that that footprint. There needs to be more investment made to protect the assets that are put in place. Absolutely. I mean, that it takes the scope question and, and, and it just explodes it even further when you look at that, where if, you, if you're not really sure, and so many organizations aren't, aren't really sure where and how far their reach of data, of services, of information. And now I'm going to bring in the other big piece of vendors and of third parties. So many organizations struggle to know what their real footprint is, what their real, like you mentioned, their real threat surface is. And it is almost always much bigger and much more complex than they realize. You know, again, if you were to really get a handle on all of your IoT, and if you're in, you know, many industries, your industrial control systems and security for those, and then all your core networks, and then all your data, and then all your cloud services, if you were to really get a handle on all those, you still haven't started dealing with your vendors. And how many now, how many organizations are absolutely beholden to key critical third-party services, systems, data management capabilities to survive? If you were to get all those initial pieces, you then still have all of the vendor management and then the supply chain cybersecurity aspects to deal with. When you get above being a small company, the scope has gotten to the level that everyone needs help. So this is why I've been able to be a, a VCSO and a cybersecurity advisor for the past five years, because frankly, it's too much. CISOs need CISO assistance. You know, Teams, large cyber teams need help strategizing planning, wrapping their heads around these things, and of course, dealing with the day-to-day, which is the constant 
threat and often realized threat of cyber incidents and problems, it is absolutely a massive problem to attack in so many different directions. Well, and I think you talk about the third parties and you're really talking about, do you trust your business partners? In the old days, it was a handshake and a look in the eye and a contract. Yeah. And now uh, two stories real quick. We worked with a a long-term care facility several years ago that wanted to do a third-party analysis. And they thought they had two, 300 contracts. At the end of the day, they had 1,200 contracts. Wow. Not all of them were getting data, but some of them were exposed to the healthcare information. Another story or anecdote, we have a tool that we work with that can measure third and fourth party connections from a cyber cyber third party. So your technology vendors. And we've run those scans on organizations and they found that their third party, so those immediately providing service to them, and their fourth party, those technology firms that are providing services that are fourth party in a small under 50 person firm can be in the hundreds. Yep. So yep. it is enormously complex. It, it's incredible. Every time we talk about it, if we get in this topic, it only keeps growing as more and more. Again, it, all of this would be bad enough if it was static. But as more, again, positive, good, useful technology, right? More and more tools and tech get created that businesses, that organizations of all types can use to do what they do better. Every single advancement brings rafts of new vendors, rafts of new capabilities and services that just add to that massive network. I mean, and now, of course, it's it's AI. All these AI-driven tools, generative AI, old-fashioned AI, as I like to call it, just plain old machine learning tools and predictive analytics tools that are now out there as a service. And they're using all these third-party services. And they're in this cloud and that cloud. And it is absolutely tremendous. It's such to a point where it's not surprising, unfortunately, that we see as many incidents and issues as there are, because as it's almost impossible for the defenders to keep up with the tech, the tech advancements, the new developments, the new capabilities, they come like instantly. Every second, there's more and more and more. And we, of course, are tempted to really focus on protecting where we are, but we've got to get to the point where we're ahead of that curve, where we're looking and seeing what's coming because it is, it you know, it becomes constantly chasing after this ever moving target of what are we going to do with all the new capabilities and new tech, the new risks that come with that, the new threats that come with it, and and so many of those new things tend to roll into the lap of the whoever the security officer is, whether it's the CIO without the separation of duties doing double duty, whether it's the the CISO, the chief security officer. I've seen a lot of chat GPT, AI, ML work flowing to them. And that's not just cybersecurity. That's contracts and intellectual property and labor risk and a bunch of different things. And it's all adding to that complexity. Yes. So I know that if I Google, and I've got to be careful because if I Google just Kevin Jackson, I find an Iowa wrestling coach and you. <laughs> so I need to be very careful and Google Kevin Jackson cybersecurity level six. And I find that you've been busy. Yes. You've been busy talking about data-driven or data outcome-based security. Tell me what that means. Obviously, we've got this complex problem and data is a solution. Absolutely. So, you know, the the thing that's bothered me for at least a decade from the time uh, when I was at Booz Allen here at Wright-Patt Air Force Base for about eight years is really when it started to come together in my head. And it went over, spilled over into when I was the CISO at a pharmaceutical company here locally, is that we are using all these advanced data tools and cybersecurity 
at the tactical level and at the domain level, I mean, left and right. I remember, you know, 10 years ago, I was amazed to see they're using Bayesian machine learning algorithms in our spam filters, inexpensive spam filters and phishing detection. They're doing machine learning in these tools and they're learning email patterns to detect fish. You know, back in 2013 and 14, I was like, oh, this is great. It's in there. And, you know, in our, our modern MDR tools and our EDR tools and all over the place in financial services and insurance, they've got fraud detection tech that are true AI data analytics engines are looking for outliers that are running the comparisons, doing the correlations. So much AI and ML and great data analytics is being used in these narrow tactical areas. They're great. Meanwhile, we're at the strategy level we're, and we're trying to figure out what our cyber training and awareness program is. And how do we decide exactly how we're going to train, how often, what methods and methodologies, what types of tools? We put our finger in the air and we say, well, the standards say at least do it annually. So we're going to train once a year. How do we know that that's optimal? What if we were to train four times a year and for the cost increase of doing it four times a year? What if the results were 25% better in terms of the human factors incidents that resulted? Wouldn't that be worth doing it if the, if the benefit outweighed the cost by a lot? And when we're picking our, our decision-making, our strategies for how we're going to insource versus outsource, we're going to do third parties for this. We're going to use consultants for that. We're going to use internal resources for these six or seven areas. How are we deciding those things? We're doing what we're comfortable with, whatever we heard at a conference, whatever we see in a, one or two articles, narrow little silos of guidance for how we're making these critical decisions. Why aren't there tools to help the strategy planners, the cyber decision-makers, make these calls based on data. And in other words, I look around, I'm like, you know, it's not like we're in a world with hundreds of thousands of companies actively doing cyber that have results that we could maybe look at and see what works best. <laughs> it's exactly what we have. And I looked around and realized the whole world is like a test bed. The whole planet's like a cybersecurity test bed. Again, I came from engineering. I came as, up as a double E and we used to you know, build hardware systems. And when you build a hardware system, you design it, you fabricate it, you build it, and you put it to test and you collect data on those tests and you test the heck out of it because, you know, people's security or system security is is at risk. And if something fails, you try another way and that fails, you try another way until you get a combination of, of approaches that actually work under pressure for the long term. And then that's the thing you actually go forward with. It's a test bed. Well, if I've got, you know, something like 600,000 large organizations in the world, let alone all the mid-market and small, but, you know, nearly a million large organizations that have active cybersecurity programs that are doing these things and are getting results, positive or negative, why can't I correlate what works best with these different approaches and give some data analytic-based answers on what to do with, on how I do my overall strategies, on what processes and operational things I put in place, the nature of the tools I use. That's what really got me going. That led me to this idea of outcome-based cybersecurity and data analytics at the strategy level instead of only tactical. So as, as you've gathered that information, we've talked about this before. There's a lot of data sources out there that are breach stories, things in the press, stuff from yes. academia, stories from vendors, stories, stories in the press about, about big events You've kind of put a net out and gathered all of that together, I think, is the foundation of this data-driven product. Is that correct? Absolutely. Uh, and we call it data harvesting. 
you know, when we decided to put together the first the patent and then the actual application for what we're doing here at level six, the heart of it is data. You know, every time I mentioned this initially years ago to uh, friends that are in data analytics or doing data products, their question was, well, this is all fine and dandy, but you've got to get the data. You've got to have the data and you've got to make it reliable. And that's, of course, led me to realize open source intelligence, OSINT. There is so much open source intelligence out there in the world of cybersecurity events, incidents, near misses, major events. And on top of that, it's getting better. So I thought this is a good combination of places to be. When the whole world is slowly leaning to more and more and more forced and or willing sharing of what happens in the cybersecurity realm. When the White House is constantly putting out notices that are saying, we need to have more sharing. We need to encourage organizations to talk about what's working and not in cybersecurity. Well, that's the right direction to be going. We already do that a lot in the threat world. You know, there's the uh, information sharing and analysis centers, the ISACs are out there, where different industries have intentional back channels to share threat information. Well, we want to take that to the next level and realize that we could start it with open sources and then as the world continues to move more towards sharing. Let's start sharing strategy information and have tools in place that can correlate strategies with outcomes. And then the real magic, marrying that with cost, the cost of strategies versus the cost of bad outcomes and breaches. And then we can use data to actually see bang for the buck analytics, what works best for the cost so that you can see in various approaches for various domains the kinds of things that are really working, that are worth putting your dollars into versus the things that are not showing promise that adds up to their cost. Because that's really what it comes down to for me is it's not so much just a security issue, it's a security and resource allocation issue. Because no one has infinite resources of time or dollars. So when push comes to shove, you've got to pick what you're going to do with your X number of dollars and what's not going to get done. And if you choose wisely, you may spend a lot of money doing something that has far less bang for the buck than what you could have done, but no one knows it. That's what we're after. So are we talking about, I know if I look at your website, you talk about the maturity models that have been used in the past. Are we talking about immature organizations that where we go in and sometimes organizations have a complete lack of, of security controls or a, a mostly lack of security controls? And then we have other organizations that are relatively mature that don't know what the next dollar should be or if there should be a next dollar. Right. Or is your tool able to solve both problems? Absolutely. It's for all the above. If you're starting off a brand new cybersecurity program from square one, you're a new business or um, you've just decided it's time to really have active security because something happens or you just know you need, or the board demands it, then a great place to start is looking at data to see okay, if I, in each of these areas, each of these cyber domains, if I need to do something, what should I do first, second, third, fourth? What has the most bang for the buck? But statically wouldn't be enough because then you also want to know how that changes over time as the world changes and as tech changes. That's another part of the, you know, the power of a tool that does this because again, you're a brand new company, you'll get data on how to start in each area, but six months from now, two months from now, <laughs> The answers might change as cost profiles change, new tools and tech come out, the nature of personnel and resources change, whatever it might be. You want the data to reflect the changing world so you can always get updates on what the best bang for the buck is in a given area. But then also on the other end of the spectrum, if you're a mature organization, and honestly, our first two early adopters way back at the end of last year uh, into our tool, 
those were mature organizations that had up and running cyber programs fully documented. They're running cyber risk management. They've got you know risk registers and GRC in place. They've got risk committees and the majority of the controls in place. What they're struggling to do is keep up with all the threats, understand their threat model, understand their threat surface, really do vendor management, really get ahead of the curve in risk management and understand how to manage their budgets because they're spending all this money and they're looking at an economic downturn possibly coming. And they're like, look, we're not going to give you more money unless you can tell us what the benefit is. That's where we come in. We're like, you're able to look at the data and say, you know what? We want to do X, Y, and Z, not just because they're in the headlines, because the data says the X, Y, and Z are worth doing. They have more benefit than their cost. So an example that I know, um, this is not artificial intelligence. This is Doug's intelligence. But <laughs> we had pandemic hit and most firms had to have a solution to work remote and went to yes. Office 365 or Microsoft 365, I guess, is officially branded today and went with the lower cost license. And then it seemed like almost every business email compromise investigation we did for about two years involved the lower cost Microsoft implementation without two-factor and some other uh, things that the higher level license would would have included. And so it seems like you mentioned new tech just a moment ago. It seems like a lot of times we implement new tech. When I say we, I mean the whole market. And there are some early adopters. What's the joke about the pioneers or the ones with the arrows in their back? But early adopters that get hit, we we know now the first wave of firms that push out the 365 that they need to go with the higher higher dollar license. You gather that kind of information. Absolutely. So when somebody goes to implement new tech, they can say, oh, you know, company AYZ had a problem. I need to make sure that I don't have that problem. Is it Absolutely. essentially the way that the tool works at a fundamental level? Absolutely. And we're, we're, we're going to take it even to the next level. Where we're going in upcoming versions of the tool is what we call a change engine, where you as a cyber decision maker can go to a menu that's for your industry that makes sense for the kind of organization you are and choose the type of business event and or technical change that you're about to deal with to get analytics on the best ways, the best approaches to do it securely. And one would be if it's a business continuity event. Imagine being able to go to a menu and you've got, you know, all of a sudden another pandemic hits that go to a menu and look at business continuity events in my industry and see what are the recommendations that have the best security value for the cost of ways to go about work from home support, remote access, cloud-based storage, mobile device management, and other things that would apply to a business continuity event and have all that ready to just you know click on a button and go see recommendations for managing that kind of change. One of the bigger right now avenues we're looking at using that kind of capability is in organizations that deal with mergers and acquisitions, M&A. If you're an organization that buys a lot of companies, and we've got some interested people right now that are looking at our tool for this reason, they have the job of always doing due diligence and then integration of these acquired companies. Well, why reinvent the wheel on what the best, most secure ways to go about those acquisitions and integrations are when thousands of other companies have been doing it for decades and gotten either good or bad results? So we want to be able to have that CISO go in and say, okay, we've got another acquisition coming in our industry. We're acquiring a company of this size with these characteristics. What's the best approaches for us? What order of operation should we look at? What's going to give us the best results for the cost when we do this function, this business function of merging in? Or if we're 
splitting off a company or whatever it might be, a change engine to go in and see based on the data, what are the right ways to do things? That's our vision. Knowing from the due diligence we've done, really two things are true. One is a lot of times you're taking two very different technologies and trying to plug them in. And there, there are lessons there. It seems like in that space, the market doesn't, to be kind, learn those lessons. They tend to repeat themselves over and over right. again. And then on the other front, we've done some threat hunting in merger and acquisition cases and found threats. And that's like finding birds in the chimney or bats in the attic of the new home. And suddenly the price is a little different. Absolutely. That's critical. These things need to be part of the due diligence process as well. If the real question is resource allocation, when you're you know in that due diligence phase and you want to look at this company that your company might acquire, it's important to be able to look and see at this you know, soon to be part of your organization, if they have had a, a very poor strategic approach to how they've been using their resources, they spend a lot of money, but a lot of it are things that don't have a lot of impact. That's really something you want to know. And you want to find out, well, okay, if I were to change this organization, and once we are in, you know, running them, once we have control of the organization, what could we do and at what cost to improve that overall cost benefit equation for them? Today, yeah, that's that's exactly where we're heading. When sometimes that time to integration, how quickly I get all the technology integrated actually has an impact on the return on investment. We're we're doing one right now. And that's exactly the case is that the quicker they can make that integration work, the quicker they'll get to the numbers that they think that they originally made the investment to get to. And absolutely. Absolutely. That's huge. I didn't realize you were doing that in the MA space. That's cool. Oh, absolutely. It's such an important piece because again, almost everyone seems to reinvent the wheel. Every organization, they may have their own approach to it, but they don't really know how, what other ways there may be to do it. We want to get rid of that. There's enough data out there and there's academic research. I know you mentioned that in the beginning. There's academic research galore on these things. Nobody's using it. You know, if you're not in academia, you tend to not go look up scholarly journal articles on ways to do, you know, technical integrations, but they're out there. PhD dissertations and peer-reviewed journal articles galore in almost every cyber domain, we're intaking that data so that we have a central place for customers to come and say, oh, this is what I'm, I want to know the answers. And it's not just based on all the data we can accumulate. It's also the data that researchers have accumulated, which is fabulous. So being able to get these kinds of answers, it's in our reach net. We're to a place here you know, with cloud computing, with machine learning, with data analytics and modeling. There's no reason we're not developing these capabilities for all of these areas. And it goes even further. You know, we're we're targeting all the pieces of governance, risk, and compliance. Cybersecurity is one of them. We're also looking at privacy management. We're looking at vendor management. We're looking at how overall processes like ESG and DEI, the processes that are used for those, they have a cost. If you're going to spend money on these things, why not do it optimally? So our vision is to kind of unite all these components within greater GRC with a data-based foundation so that orgs can always optimize and make the choices that the data shows are the best. So what I'm hearing, and I don't know if I'm, I'm hearing it wrong, that you're really working more towards an enterprise risk model, not just the technology or the cyber piece with the DEI and the ESG. It's really, what are my risks? Is that accurate? 100%. Our big picture vision Cybersecurity is actually only one component. There's all these other disciplines that can be modeled in the same way. So it's a little longer term vision because, again, cyber is so enormous. It's so broad. 
but there are pieces of it that go beyond pure security and that go into these other related pieces within the GRC umbrella that can be modeled. They can be modeled. And if they can be modeled, a new little uh, tagline we've kind of been using recently. Traditionally, you may have heard people talking about metrics and they say, what you measure, you can improve, right? If you don't measure them, you can't improve. Well, we have a new take on that. And we've been saying kind of for the AI generation, what you model, you can optimize. If you create analytic models of something, whatever that process is, whatever that area is, if you create reliable analytic models of a thing, then using analytics and machine learning tools, AI tools, you can optimize that thing. And that's what we're really after. Model these different disciplines so that we can optimize. We can take in all the data, how you do it, what it costs to do it, what the outcomes and losses and benefits are, and optimize. And it's not even the hardest kind of analytic tech that's out there. Correlation analyses and basic machine learning really gets you going on optimized views of how to do all these things. So you're past the beta stage. You're in production, as we would say, in the tech world. You have an early adopter program. You want to talk to us about that a little bit? Absolutely. You know, again, one of the best parts of this is it's a sharing environment. It's a network effects approach. The more organizations that share with us, that more that helps everyone. The data we get from open sources and the data we get from academia are fantastic, but never as fantastic and as high data quality as we get from our actual member organizations that join in. So as a way to entice and bring in more and more members, we have our early adopter program here while we're in Listen version 1 and 1.1, which is you know dramatically reduced pricing to come in and be a member, annual membership, to get access, use the tool, you know, beat the heck out of it get the benefits, and give feedback on what in your given industry. And we've got a lot of different industries already represented, but we want more. One thing about this tool, it's not industry-specific. It's not size-specific. We've seen uh, interest from all over the place. So we're trying to get more and more early adopters in to really get their hands on the tool as decision-makers and help us shape it, help us you know, get it to where it really needs to be, and talk about the big picture so that we can even better hone our roadmap for where we're going with these future functions, too. If you're interested in the early adopter program, you can reach out to us or you can go to Kevin's website, which is level6cyber.com, um, level6cyber.com. Sign up and, and learn a little bit more about this video to explain some of what Kevin's said and explain a little bit more about the early adopter program. So that's available to people. Fantastic. So, so Kevin, this is largely a business audience. You know, you added founder to the list of titles that, that you have in life. Talk about that founding experience. I know this wasn't a wake up in the morning and, you know, the the overnight success band that's been playing bars for 15 years, making nothing and suddenly had a hit record. You've got a hit record, but you've been playing in bars, so to speak. Talk about that overnight success that's Kevin Jackson. That's really a lot of a lot of effort prior to the actual founding. Yeah, it's quite the road. So I mentioned that I was the CISO of a uh, pharmaceutical company. When I left there in 2019, it really was so that I could pursue the patent for this idea, you know, while not working for anyone else. So I went the virtual CISO route and opened Waypoint, which is, you know, cybersecurity advisory services early 20, well, late 2018 to really get the freedom to work on the patent and the idea. So it was honestly, it was even before that when I first conceived of it. So you're talking about four to five years, the process from idea to patent filing, to launching level six. 
So a lot of work behind the scenes gets there, just like you say. It's just like playing those bars to get there. Working and reworking the idea, expanding it. It's changed a thousand times over those years and continues to change and grow. We get more you know, good ideas and we toss out bad ones all the time. On the one hand, it's a great time to be a virtual CISO because there's a lot of need out there and that helps. I actually was able to use a lot of the experience helping other individual orgs, large and small, get their cyber strategies aligned to help as I devise what an analytic model would look like of cyber strategy, what the decision space looks like. At the same time, I was doing my PhD studies at Capella University. Haven't finished my dissertation yet, so I'm ABD like so many people. But all the academic research in there was critical too, because I learned more about academia and cybersecurity academia in particular, because I wanted that to be a key input. So that was going on in parallel, uh, those studies, the work as a VCSO, following the patent, then the putting together of a team, which actually was honestly maybe the easiest part of this. Because uh, over the years, you know, through the network, I've come across so many great people who are top-notch in their fields, developers, cyber experts, data people, data harvesters, uh, data scientists. And I just started reaching out to build this team and the interest was there. So we, we got together. We now have about 20 employees overall. We have no office. We all work from home because we started this during COVID. And we've been off to the races ever since. A lot of angel capital and the VC world supporting us. It's really been something. I won't say it's been easy. At time has been ridiculously hard, but uh, we're still alive and well. And, and now that we're off, up and in production, it's so worth it. What do you wish you had known before you started? Obviously, it's been hard. There are things that you've probably had to redo or undo. What do you wish you had known starting this process? Oh, wow. That's, there's a lot I could pick from. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> let's see. The one thing would be don't assume that any of the things that you think are going to be quick and that you may even have reason to believe are going to be quicker or easier are the ones are the things that will be quicker and easier. Uh, when we started off, we had immediate interest from some investors in the VC space that just dialed in with us right away. And we thought that part of the problem was solved because they were so dialed in. Turns out that really wasn't the case, though they were dialed in, ended up being a, a long time of, of working together and not really getting there, which actually cost us a lot of time. On the one hand, other hand, what I thought was going to be really difficult was you know raising money from other sources ended up being the easier thing. So not assuming anything. Not assuming you know any one thing is going to be the easier or hard thing is something I learned just over time. What you think might be hard may not be that hard. Things that seem easy may end up becoming the big challenges. Well, and you've plugged into some of the incubators here in Ohio. I mean, this is an Ohio-based technology startup. Yep. The, the way I found out about it was your picture at, at an announcement at Rev1, which we actually work with Rev1. And it was funny because the GBQ logo was right over your shoulder, like it was perfectly placed. <laughs> it sure is. Web1's been a great partner. We, we, we love them. Absolutely. And they still are a really big part of what we're doing. Just a great organization. Yeah, I think Ohio does tech development, right? The story about you know Ohio being a Rust Belt state is very different. And I hear a lot of those stories as I'm doing these podcasts that there's a lot of tech and a lot of really neat innovation that doesn't have to occur on the coast happening here in Ohio. Absolutely. Yeah. And so it was, it's been great, honestly, here learning that because I'm a transplant. I grew up on the East Coast, been here now over 15 years. But in this space, I had no idea until really getting going with level six, just how healthy the startup market is around here. I mean, there are resources galore and there's organizations that are willing to tie in. It's been great. Now, recently, just recently, in this last six months, 
I've gotten tied in with some fellow founders that are out in Silicon Valley and started talking to more people that are out of New York. But I haven't found that it's really, it's different, but it's not necessarily better. They're going through the exact same stories that I'm going through. We're comparing notes. And uh, some of them are talking about, maybe we need to reach out into the Midwest a little bit. At the same time, I'm looking at some of them about reaching out more into the big traditional startup worlds. So it's really impressive. Uh, Those stories that, you know, there need to be more stories talking about how this is not just a rust belt anymore. There's a lot of good stuff going on here. Well, now it's time for the final countdown. So I'm going to jump from cyber to Kevin and talk about some personal questions. What did you dream of becoming when you were in middle school? When I was in middle school, I was convinced I was going to be an aerospace engineer and be one of those aerospace engineers that got to fly on the space shuttle. I wanted to go to space in the worst way. I just wanted to be an astronaut, and my pathway was going to be through aerospace engineering. I was on the fence of going to the Naval Academy. I'm an Annapolis native, born, born and raised in Annapolis, been surrounded by midshipmen my whole career. So I thought that's what's going to be my path. Ended up not, but I was close, became an electrical engineer instead. Who inspires you? There's a lot of people I could pick, but off the top of my head, I would say my dad. My dad passed away three years ago, back in 2020. Hardest working man I ever knew. He ran his own business his entire career. Every every day I was alive, he was running his own business. And that's what inspired me to become an entrepreneur. Never seen anyone work as hard as that man. What is your favorite life hack? That's an easy one. Going to sleep early. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things my wife and I have learned is we don't try to stay up late anymore. We're very much morning people. Going to bed relatively early and not staying up super late like we used to in the days when we didn't have all the gray hair. Biggest life hack is going to sleep early and starting relatively early. It just, everything seems to work better. So that question, the most curious data point that I think we have from Empower Hour is the technology people that I asked that question of have more personal habit life hacks and the non-technology people have more technology life hacks. Whatever <laughs> no that's kidding. Yes. <laughs> um, I've got to go back through and, and write them all down and really compare. But that's the sense I get is that when we're in tech, we have something that's non-tech that's our life hack. What's been wow. your most valuable failure? There's so many. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, probably my most valuable failure goes back to college when I failed to get the big scholarship that would have let me go to college with all my buddies at University of Maryland. Didn't get that, ended up going to a small school in, in Baltimore City called Morgan State University instead. And the way the next four years played out, I, I still am scared to think of what would have happened if I had gone the other route. It was definitely the right path. So not being able to get uh, to my what I thought was my goal and not going to the big, big college, the party school, I think was super valuable. And finally, you work hard. How do you play to balance life? A couple of ways. I love to play music. Um, I play guitar and drums. I gave my drums away recently, but I'm going to get some electronic ones. I love playing guitar. Do that whenever I can. And I'm a writer. I write in my, in my spare time which sadly there's not much of anymore, but I'll get back to it. You get back to it. <laughs> I will get back to it. Kevin, it's been great having you. I knew some of this, but it's great, great to be able to learn a little bit more and then to share it with other people. Fantastic. Thanks for having me, Doug. Appreciate it. Time's up. Thanks for listening to this episode of Empower Hour. Join us next time by subscribing to Empower Hour on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your preferred listening platform. Want more GBQ? We don't blame you. Visit us online at gbq.com for the business news and advice that matters most. Who is empowering your growth?